Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to the Find Your Edge podcast. I'm your host, Michael. I'm a registered dietitian and sports nutritionist, and I'm talking with athletes and experts about the key actionable things you can do to improve your health and performance. So let's jump right in. Hey guys, welcome back to the Find Your Edge podcast. This is your host, Michael, and I'm joined with a very special guest today, Mr. Lee Welch, uh, PT at um, The Running PTs. Um, I'll let you kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself. So thanks for being here, Lee. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I'm co-owner of The Running PTs. Uh, we just celebrated our second anniversary yesterday of opening this clinic. Uh, I've been doing this for a lot longer than that. Um, but my background is essentially I was a, I went to NC state for undergrad and graduated with a BS in chemistry. Cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I figured it would get me a job. Uh, and if I wanted to go to grad school one day, it would be a good degree for a graduate program. So I worked in pharmaceuticals. I have a, I was a, a scientist essentially have a kind of a research mind. Uh, I like data. I like analytics. Um, I like to problem solve and tinker. And so working in pharmaceuticals, I was also a runner. Uh, that was my hobby. And I liked, I still like to refer to myself, at least at the time as the often injured runner. <laughs> so I got hurt a lot and I would always try to self problem solve. A lot of people are like that. And, uh, I, I tore my hamstring playing football and it just, you know, as an endurance runner, it just kind of lingered and it never got better. And so I, I finally, I went to a PT. I didn't even know what physical therapy, physical therapy was. And he fixed it in like one visit. And at the time I was considering a career change and I just, I thought it would be an interesting field where I would have autonomy. I could problem solve. I could work with runners, which is, was what my goal was. So I decided to look into a career change. And that's when I went back to school at East Carolina. I went to ECU for PT school and they have a really good running program there. They have a running assessment clinic. Uh, my mentor there was Dr. Blaze Williams. He's now at Nike. He's wow. renowned for his literature and, um, foot and ankle research so I went to work with him and I studied under him and learned run form and running biomechanics 3d analysis I did all that stuff at ECU with him and that's kind of where I got a lot of my biomechanics knowledge that's where those seeds were kind of planted was at East Carolina so wow that's really cool I didn't I didn't know about all of that and it's funny yeah. how many people I talked to that got into their field because of like their own experience especially with healthcare providers of some sort uh, yeah. like you know Sarah Chris and I all got into it because of our experiences as athletes with nutrition yeah um, so it's funny how many people just like have like a bad experience with like a problem or something and they decide yeah. they found help with it and so they want to go help other people with it yeah yeah I find that to be pretty consistent with PTs as well but yeah that's certainly my story so, I mean, you talked a lot about the, or not a lot, you mentioned the 3D analysis and like foot and ankle and like running specialty. So, I mean, you're a running specialist and a lower extremity specialist, right? Yeah. 
So what is, yeah. what does all that mean for like somebody that's looking like a runner that wants to come get PT? Like, what does that mean for them? Yeah. So we, you know, we, we have, we have two clinics. Uh, our business has two clinics. One, one clinic is be young physical therapy, which was the original location is an upper extremity specialty location. Now, uh, they see a lot of baseball players. They use the 3D system for baseball problem solving and baseball performance, and they see a lot of shoulder and elbow pathology. Some other stuff as well. The running PTs, we do, do the same thing with the lower extremity. Probably 90% of my caseload is, is hip, knee, foot, ankle pain, sprains and strains. And I would, I would say 70% of my caseload are endurance athletes around there, give or take. Um, so I just have a lot of experience. I have a passion for it. I have a background that a lot of PTs don't have with uh, the 3D gait analysis and doing a lot of research in PT school on runners. A lot of PTs don't get that experience. And then, you know, I had a mentor tell me probably five, six years ago, like you got to grab the bull by the horns if you really want to work with this population. Um, so that's what I, you know, and, and, and it's true, the more you see, the better you get. Um, and so I've, for years, seeing eight, nine endurance athletes a day, it, I've seen a lot more than most healthcare practitioners. So I can, you know, when I see a patient, I immediately, I might, I might have a bank of 10,000 of this type of individual. And so I have this experience that I can draw on where I can put people in clusters. I know what to look for. Uh, I can get to the root of the problem a lot quicker. I feel like just because of the experience that I have been blessed with. Um, but, you know, in terms of, you know, a runner looking to get help, like, yeah, I mean, it, most running injuries are going to be from the waist down. So that's just what we do really well. Um, gotcha. Our goal is always twofold. One, to get with runners in particular, especially endurance athletes, they typically have a time crunch in terms of their injury. The injuries are never, they never come at a good time. There's yeah. never like, this was a good time for me to get hurt, right? Yeah. Like, um, so the first and foremost goal is typically to try to get the individual to feel better as quickly as we can. And then the second goal, which is equally as important is to find the driver, find the problem because pathology, like let's say somebody has IT band friction syndrome. Um, the soft tissue that is injured is a symptom of a greater problem. You know, runners, Patients, they typically want to know what's wrong. Like, what is it that's hurting? To me, that's not as important. That's usually pretty easy. To me, what's important is, okay, I know this is wrong. This is the, these are the steps we can take to get this to feel better. But if we don't address the problem, it's not going to get better. Yeah, it's just going to continue Ultimately. to come back over and over and over. Yeah, and most, you'll find most endurance athletes, I think anybody listening, we have these like patterns that of injuries that we typically deal with like one side or the other, or like, you know, when I increase my mileage, my IT band starts to hurt or, you know, I've had plantar fascia fasciitis two or three times. So those are all symptoms of a greater problem and runners are smart. They're educated. 
education goes a very long way and runners like to know about themselves and then they can take that and run with it. Kind of like me. I mean, I wanted to problem solve my own injuries. That's why I came into this. And if you've given it a runner, well, like let's say, for example, somebody has chronic patellofemoral syndrome or knee pain on one side, it's a, and it's a female. If you tell this individual, well, based on my experience, you're a lot more flexible than the average female. So you need to focus more on stability and strengthening and your run form is really important because you're so flexible. Oftentimes those individuals like to stretch because uh, they're good at it. And, um, but education again goes a long way in educating this individual. This is, these are the things that you need to be doing. And I don't give a lot. I think if you hit the nail on the head with the problem, it doesn't take more than one or two interventions to address the driver. Um, so, and then once the runner endurance athlete knows this is the problem, they, they can continue to learn more and more about themselves. So, yeah, um, that's essentially what we do is, is try to get you feeling better quickly. And those are the things like manual therapy, manipulation, dry needling, um, Graston, cupping, you know, deep yeah. tissue. Um, and then the driver oftentimes uh, is a combination of run form uh, and not really understanding uh, their strengths and weaknesses. So it sounds like, you know, I mean, when someone comes to see you, they're getting, you know, that immediate relief is the goal, you know, doing some of these other therapies to get the immediate relief. But yeah. then you're also looking at the root cause to, to actually address the, the root issue so that they yeah. don't continue to have issues with it. Yes. And, and yeah, and runners will typically, that information sticks with them which is great. There is a very educated population. And that's why I love running with them because the educational component is huge. Um, and it's one of the most helpful parts. Yeah, so. for sure. We see that on our side too, with nutrition is like when someone comes in educated, you can kind of explain things in a different way. You can like talk about different things and get to a higher level with it. Whereas like when someone's got no education on the topic, you have to, you have to spend more time building that base of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that's like really interesting is, um, you know, you talked about like run form issues and stuff, but do you see shoes as an issue? I mean, shoes are like a real hot topic. I mean, there's all kinds of new cool shoes coming out, but I mean, can shoes cause issues for people? Is it more like a run form thing? And most people could be fine in any shoe. Like what's the, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, shoes, you know, shoes can be a problem if there's a mismatch, between the the foot type and the shoe uh if somebody's got a, a a really flexible foot or really flat foot and they they have a lot of collapse in their midfoot um you know that individual may need a little bit stiffer shoe i.e a stability shoe um oftentimes you'll see those individuals want when, when I see a mismatch, I see that runner forced a shoe that they liked because it was a certain brand or something like that. I like the way it looked. And some of the, you know, if the, if the runner has a flat foot that's really straight and you put them in a shoe that has a, a more of a curved last to it, they're just going to fall off the inside of the shoe. It's not going to really stabilize their foot. 
Um, I mean, I'm all for stabilizing yourself through strengthening, but sometimes people do need, if they're going to be running a lot of miles and they're an adult, they well, need, some, <laughs> yeah, they need some stability. They need a shoe that has a foot plate in it. Um, so from a, yeah, from a shoe standpoint, there, I definitely see probably once every two weeks, I see an injury that could have been prevented because the runner was in the wrong shoe. Um, and it's usually, um, it's never like a runner went into a stability shoe and got hurt. It's usually that a runner that should have probably been doing these longer miles in a stability shoe has been running in something more minimal yeah. and their body's not prepared for that. So, um, and sometimes you'll see, you'll see somebody that went down and he'll toe drop too quickly and they, you know, he'll toe drop for those of you guys that don't know is, um, a measure of the height of the back of the shoe minus the height of the front of the shoe. So you'll see anywhere from a minimalist shoe would have no heel toe drop. So zero all the way up to about 12 millimeters of drop from the back to the front. And when you go from a traditional shoe, which has some heel toe drop, let's say it has 10 millimeters and you go down to four millimeters, it's going to increase leverage at the foot and ankle. It's natural. Um, and so the, you'll put a little bit more, more load through your calves and Achilles. And so sometimes I'll see people that have a little bit of Achilles pathology or calf tightness because they drop down really quickly. Um, so, but yeah, there, you, there is – shoes can be really advantageous to problem-solve an injury. And I would say very frequently – are we considering that in the driver behind it? It yeah. certainly can be a component. You know, the drive, when I say the driver behind an injury, sometimes that's two or three things. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the, the shoes are big and that's, you know, that educational piece can go a long way. That's where it's important to have a really good shoe fitter, you know, or send them to a store that has somebody that, you know, we trust and has experience and, um, can give good recommendations yeah so. and i think that's one of the other big things that you know you guys as a practice offer is you guys are runners you've been around running you've been around the industry you have connections in the area so you can help people like you can have an informed conversation about shoes it's not just hey go get like this brand shoe you know it's you need to be looking right. for these things in a shoe yeah, yeah. so i think that's really helpful so let's back up a little bit because we were starting to get into like some run form and biomechanics kind of mm -hmm. things. So can you give us like a quick rundown on like the basics of run form biomechanics? Um, like just the quick rundown. Sure. Um, so, you know, the, the easiest way to think about run form from a, uh, a scientific perspective, when we look at run form in the lab and th this is helpful because it, 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 you know, it can apply clinically and it can, can apply to you guys out there on the road. Um, when we study run mechanics, we're essentially a spring. We're essentially looking at the individual like they're a spring hitting the road repeatedly. When you run, you're never on two feet. You're always on one foot or none. So with every um, contact point, you hit the ground and then, you're, then you start to load for the first about 50% of the time you're on the ground. 
And then you unload the spring for the last 50% of the time that that foot is on the ground. And then you have a period of time when you're in the air and then the other foot comes down and hits the ground. So when you think about uh, run form like a spring, you're essentially the spring bouncing down the road um, repeatedly, right? And so that can be, a, that's a, important to consider because one of the, I'll get back to that, but there was a, there was a research study done several years ago where they looked at, it was a big study where they looked at, uh, I don't remember the numbers, but there was quite a few runners, I think a thousand or so runners. And there was a subset of runners within that group that had never been hurt. And so they wanted to see, they looked at a lot of parameters um, in terms of flexibility, strength, running, background, mileage. Um, and then they looked at mechanics and stuff like that. And, uh, and what we have found based on the literature is that one of the things that predicts not getting hurt is, not, is, is having a lower ground reaction force. So when you think about that spring hitting the ground, every time it hits the ground, the ground pushes back against you. And so that's called a ground reaction force. So every time you hit the ground, you hit the ground with up to three and a half times your body weight. These individuals that were, had never been hurt, some of them hit the ground with one and a half times their body weight, as low as that. So really low force, really low load. And so you can apply that uh, clinically because we know that that's a predictor of not getting hurt. And if you're a spring bouncing down the road, then there are certain, that's how I kind of think about runners. There are certain parameters that you can adjust to reduce the ground reaction force vector. And at the same time, you know, you don't, nobody wants me to slow them down. At the same time, work on a con what we call economy, running economy. Um, so if we're a spring bouncing down the road, um, we know that lower ground reaction force is better from an injury risk. There's a term called um, elastic recoil that is important when it comes to economy. Elastic recoil is essentially the loading and unloading of a spring. So when you hit the ground, you want to have a nice advantageous elastic recoil. So you hit the ground and then you unload that spring. Um, some people refer to that as like the slingshot kind of that's it feels like a slingshot it feels like you're pop 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 down the road with low force at the same time so when it comes to kind of finding this blend of injury risk and running economy that elastic recoil having this um effective elastic recoil where you're unloading appropriately um combined with not hitting the ground too hard so I know that doesn't answer and we'll get into that the like technicalities or like the stuff people want to hear in terms of like well what can I actually do yeah um, but I think that background is helpful at least for me with the scientific approach like because you can think about that when you're running to a degree mm -hmm. um, but that would be my like 20,000 foot view of why it's important and then we can talk a little bit more about like some of the intrinsic if you will things that you should be focusing on as a runner um yeah so you mentioned run economy or running economy and that's yeah. kind of like a buzz term i mean people throw that around you know i mean you want to optimize economy and stuff 
So yeah. what's just like in basic terms, what's running economy? Yeah, it's essentially, um, it's essentially uh, the energy output that you're creating, um, uh, how or how efficient is your vehicle, I should say. Um, it's a better way to think about it. Like how efficient is your mechanics? Um, not necessarily from a cardiovascular standpoint, although it does, it's, like, it's basically like, are you optimizing leverage? Are you optimizing your strength tension relationship in your glutes? Um, are you, are we setting the stage for that spring to be unloaded effectively and not overloaded? Um, so poor running economy, this may be an easier way to think about it is, you know, when that, that spring gets loaded a lot up front and at a really steep angle to the ground. So if that spring gets loaded ineffectively, it's not going to want to push you forward. You want that spring to load at the, at the right angle and unload at the right angle so that you pop forward. That's essentially running economy. Um, I, I really like the spring analogy too, because like, I mean, you guys, I saw it on Instagram, you guys reposted it, but the, all the different like run styles. Um, yeah. and yeah. like one of them was like the bouncer yeah. and, uh, Sonia, like when you think of like a spring, you know, I mean, it's pretty inefficient if you're just bouncing up and down and not going very far in between yeah. those bounces. Yeah. Um, so yeah. to your and point, then with, with, sorry to interrupt you, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and to your point, like with the economy, we want to get like a little bit of that bounce, but you're wanting to turn that into a lot of forward motion. Correct. Yeah. You want to move forward with it. Um, you know, what we see oftentimes is, is, you know, overstriding, right. That you can think about overstriding that spring is getting loaded too steep. Um, and so the ground is, it's pushing back against you and preventing you from getting forward. And there's a reason people do that, which we can talk about a little bit, but, um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like that. I, like I said, I like the spring analogy a lot. It makes it, for me, easy to, to picture. Um, so with that, what are some of the biggest issues that you see people coming in with? I mean, knowing, having like that background that we got on the biomechanics and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, when, I, when I think biggest, I just think most common right like the most common things i see uh the literature would show it's it's knee pain uh and that's certainly pretty true uh especially in women we see a lot of knee pain in the front or around the kneecap it's called typically that's referred to as patellofemoral syndrome or runner's knee it's very a very common injury in men we see more it band friction syndrome in men which is uh it's knee pain but it's on the side of the knee where your IT band crosses the femur. Um, that's a really intense pain that you really can't run through oftentimes because it hurts so bad. We see a lot of calf strains in uh, men, especially uh, older men. Uh, that's probably one of the most common things we see in the fall in, in men are calf strains, which those are are uh, relatively easy to prevent, but they can become debilitating once they happen. And then we see a lot of hip pain in women, sprains and strains in the glute piriformis area. So, but knee pain is, is one of the biggest and it can be one of the hardest, but it can also be one of the easiest things to, 
address. Oftentimes with knee pain, that's, it's like a one visit thing with some people, especially if it's related to their form. So with all of that, I mean, what do you see as like the root, like a really common root cause for a lot of these issues? Is it ramping up mileage too fast? Is it people being in the wrong shoes? Um, like what, like what are some of the really common like causes? Um, yeah, I mean, if you think about running injuries, all running injuries are overuse injuries, right? Every, cause if we weren't running, we wouldn't have gotten hurt. So uh, that, that's, that's probably the biggest one. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's, I don't, I never really chalk it up to that. You know, sometimes it is, sometimes it's, if run form checks out, they've got good, they have a good table evaluation and we know they, they're likely just doing too much. Um, but, uh, you know, to answer, to answer the question, I mean, some of the, some of the things that we see is most often the athlete is not the box. They're not checking off run form is, is certainly one of those. Um, uh, especially with knee pain, uh, run and it band friction. Oftentimes form is involved. Um, anybody that comes into the clinic, whether they, um, are injured or not, if, if I feel like run form is an essential part of their history that I need to look at, we're going to watch them run. Um, so that's one of those, uh, big drivers. The other is, you know, not doing enough recovery work. So, uh, your foam rolling of the glutes, um, calf release, that stuff is actually pretty important as you get tight. You know, most of us have had deep tissue work done. We've had massage. We know how much better we feel after that. So you take that and do it on a consistent basis to a lesser degree. And it can really help prevent injuries. I think, um, we don't have a lot of literature on that. Um, but I clinically, I definitely see it's an essential part of an athlete's recovery is the foam rolling trigger point release. Um, and, and your, your basic strength routine, but I think that's where it is important to know what to do. Mm -hmm. Like what strengthening should you be doing? Um, I see some individuals getting hurt because they're doing too much, uh, too many lunges, too many squats, uh, and plyometrics, right? I think it's good to have an isolated glute strengthening program, like bridges, side plank leg lifts, single leg bridges. Um, and I think a lot of people don't strengthen the lateral hip enough, which that muscle abducts your leg or makes your leg go straight sideways. We refer to that as like the Jane Fonda. Um, that muscle is essential because when you stand on one leg, it stabilizes your lower extremity. And when you talk to PTs, we, we typically know the literature and most of our really good literature is on strengthening that one muscle. Wow. Um, so it, we know that it prevents and fixes lower extremity pathology a lot of times. Yeah. So those are the big things like run form, uh, recovery work, especially for your flexible females. They need to get on the foam roller and use the ball a lot of times, especially in the glutes. And then, and then glute strengthening. For men, and everybody wants to know about flexibility and stretching. And I certainly see flexibility like being a problem sometimes, uh, but reduced flexibility is actually for endurance athletes 
it, it can improve running economy because it's like a tighter spring. So yeah. if your hamstring is relatively inflexible, you're less likely to be like overreaching and yeah, or overstriding. Yeah. yeah. So I don't want my endurance athletes to be overly flexible. The symmetry can be relatively important, but, um, but I, I definitely give stretches, but it's not like, that's definitely not the thing that we're giving people as consistently as foam rolling and strengthening. Yeah. So we have a YouTube channel now with like 250 exercises and, Basically, anytime somebody comes in and we give them an exercise, if it's something new, we just film it and put it on YouTube. So, but you could look at the ones that are the most popular. Those are these are exercises that the running PTs are giving to patients. A lot of it is the glute strengthening. So wow. that's where the that's like your bread and butter. That's where the some of the the that's where the sauce is, right? With yeah. The, the <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, that's one of the things you said like pretty early on is that, you know, people like to work on what they're good at and yeah. you think of runners they do when, and I think a lot of the times as runners, we think of like how we can be better in like the one plane, you know, cause like we think of just forward motion. So, you know, we don't think about the lateral motion as much. Um, so we're not, like you said, strengthening those muscles or working on those. We have a tendency to like, you know, do, uh, lunges and squats and things that are all in that same plane, like when we go to do strengthening. And so we're mm -hmm. not working on like kind of those accessories. Um, yeah. but, and I mean, especially like with guys, you know, I mean, glute bridges aren't exactly like a glamorous exercise. You know, we'd rather be doing squats and deadlifts yeah. and stuff, but, um, yeah. <laughs> I think those other things are like still really important. Yeah. And it's what I like to do is design exercises that kind of do two or three things at a time. So you can get creative, like you can work on glute strengthening and balance and proprioception at the same time. If you just do glute strengthening, standing up on one leg. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's good literature on balance work for runners too. So, which I think working on your weaknesses is certainly, you know, that you can't go wrong with that. So, yeah. And I think that's the thing that I kind of want to harp on and like really foot stomp is like, as athletes, we have a tendency when we do accessory work, when we go into our workouts to work on the things we're good at. And yeah. instead we should be putting ourselves outside of our comfort zone and doing the stuff we're not good at because that's the whole point is you need to get better at all of it and be a more well-rounded athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something we do well is, is, is PTs is find impairments. Like that's what they're called. Like I'm, I'm not flexible. Right. So I have an impairment in my hamstring flexibility. Um, I want to make sure I don't cross that line to where it's a problem. So, but PTs are good at finding impairments and, and giving you, and that's what I usually try to do is find the, one or two things that I refer to as low hanging fruit. Like this is the stuff you should be focusing on. And I don't give a lot like, and so it's easier and more realistic to work that into your, your routine, whether it's hip flexor stretching or glute strengthening and, and then giving somebody a reasonable amount. Mm -hmm. um, so if you give somebody five or six exercises, they're not going to do them. That's human nature. Uh, yeah. They may do them for a few days, but it's not really sustainable for most people for like 98% of people. They're just, and I know that. So yeah. 
I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm super guilty of that. Like I have, so I've had like back problems and like, I have a whole list of like eight exercises that was supposed to be a routine for like PT for <laughs> my back. And it's like, I do the first three or four exercises and then that's it. Like I don't yeah. do the other three or four, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. which, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's where it's important. I think to hit the nail on the head and know this is where your low hanging fruit is. Let's focus on that. Right. Yeah. So and uh, so to get into, I mean, you talked about, you know, how all of these things are beneficial. How much time should, I mean, obviously it's going to depend on someone's goals, how much they're training, the individual, like all of those things. But like how much time should someone put into like the self-care and prevention and stuff like that, like foam rolling, stretching, strengthening? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think the best way to answer it is it depends on how much you're doing so uh and it it depends on how much specific work you're doing so triathletes i think because of the variability they i don't you know this doesn't mean that triathletes shouldn't do their work but triathletes don't need to do as much recovery work um as like a pure runner would because they're getting some recovery time built in through having three things that they're focusing on and triathletes are less likely to, well, there's two, two thoughts come to mind. They're more likely to be coached, which is a great thing because coached runners don't get hurt as much. Yeah. <laughs> and they are, um, they're less likely to have a lot of intensity in their week to week. Mm-hmm. And so the more intensity you have, the more recovery work you need to do and recovery work sometimes includes rest. Um, but I think the more pure running you're doing, the more you need to focus on your glute foam rolling, your glute strengthening and some stretching the big important muscles like hip flexors and hamstrings and guys. Uh, But to answer your question directly, you know, I think, I think if you, if you have your two or three things that you should be doing, you know, these are going to help me probably no more than five to 10 minutes a day. You know, if the key is consistency with the right approach, um, that's really the, the key. And now, you know, it can, you can become overwhelming when you start to really want to squeeze that lemon um, to get more economy. That's where your strength training comes in. Like there is a lot of value in doing things like squats and lunges and good general strength training, especially with ultramarathoners and triathletes. Um, the more strength you have, we know the less likely you are to get hurt. And if you're dedicating time to that, which I think people should ideally, you know, three days a week, you know, you've got to strengthen three days a week to get stronger. So how long, probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes, three times a week, uh, from a prevention standpoint with your foam rolling, that just needs to be done consistently. You know, I would rather see, take a 20,000 foot view from now So the next, so let's take somebody that hasn't been foam rolling at all. And it's important for their injury prevention. Take a 20,000 foot view of from now over the next 12 weeks, I would rather see them doing one foam rolling exercise consistently for like two minutes daily. Mm -hmm. than I would see like sporadic, like 20 minute sessions here and there that kind of taper off towards the end. You're just going to get better results with consistency. It's just like training as an endurance athlete. Um, yeah. You know, it's just consistency that pays off. 
in the long run and just showing up. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's, that, that's to the longer I do this, that's the more I see the value and consistency with some of my individuals that don't get hurt. You know, they have their stuff that I've given them that they're, they've been doing consistently. And it's not that much. It's realistic. Yeah. So, but yeah, but for strengthening three times a week for your foam rolling or your stretching consistently, what does that look like? You know, it depends on the person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not long. Yeah. But well, I mean, that's one of the things we talk about with nutrition too, is it's, it's really like the small things add up. I mean, if you do two minutes of foam rolling a day, that's, you know, 1200 minutes of foam oh, yeah. rolling a year. Yep. I mean, that really adds up. You're better doing that than 20 minutes. Like you said, 20 minutes of foam rolling once a month. Oh yeah. You're going to make a huge difference. This is water yeah. on a rock, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So and yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things is like, we always, I mean, especially as athletes, we're always striving for perfection kind of, you know, it's like, you know, we see the pro athlete doing 20 minutes of strengthening and foam rolling a day. And we feel like we should do that. And so we try and do that. And it's like 20 minutes of that every single day. doesn't fit into our routine. No, no, it's not realistic. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're going to give up, you know, mm -hmm. if we know we haven't been doing it for the last couple of weeks, it seems overwhelming to start it again. If it's, we know it's not sustainable. So. Yeah. And so the baby steps is really makes like a big difference. It's like, if we can implement, like, like I said, a couple of minutes of foam rolling consistently throughout your week, you know, that's easy. Yeah. We can do it. We get the satisfaction of completing that, checking that box. Um, yeah. and then like, as that becomes like a habit, we can slowly add in other things. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, to kind of go back to the run form, what things about run form should people really focus on? So, you know, form is, Form is individualized uh, to a degree. It depends on how flexible and inflexible somebody is. And form is also pace dependent relatively. You know, a 12 minute, somebody running a 12 minute mile and somebody running a four minute mile, they're not really going to look the same. Um, but there are some things, important things that I think runners should exhibit like across the board as endurance athletes. So we're talking about distance running. I'm not talking about sprinting because there is, there's a difference. Um, there are differences, I should say. But the first thing would be, you know, efficient, quick steps. You know, everybody listening probably knows what cadence is. If you don't know what cadence is, it's a measure of how many steps you take a minute. Um, so I think about it as just being compact. You know, I don't, I don't harp on a number with individuals per se. I certainly will see it as low-hanging fruit if somebody's running with a cadence of 140. 145 like that's that's pretty low um and i want to increase that some but really it's just efficient quick steps uh and staying compact so that you're not overstriding so that's that's probably the the lowest of the low-hanging fruit right and then you can couple that with landing underneath your body and so i would say underneath in like air quotes because to have elastic recoil you you can't land underneath your body. Like if we're a spring bouncing down the road, if, if you land underneath your body, you're just going to bounce up and down like a pogo. Stick. Yeah. You're outrunning so, your, your legs. <laughs> yeah. So you have to, and, and really that, that, you know, that is where you land relative to your center of mass. That's what we're concerned about. Your center of mass is like if we averaged you into a softball in the middle of your pelvis, that's where it would be where you land relative to that horizontally 
is called overstriding. And so we all should land a little bit in front of that, but not too far. Because if you land too far, not only are you inefficiently loading that spring, you're increasing leverage significantly up the chain and that ground reaction force vector is too high. So, but it, I will say as an endurance athlete, you know, and as a runner, it feels to me like I'm landing under my body. Mm-hmm. That's what it should feel like. And your knee should be slightly bent to get there. Um, um, the other way to get that sensation that you're landing underneath your body is to have good posture. That would be the third point. So we've got compact form or good cadence. We've got landing underneath your body and then posture couples with that. Oftentimes we see postural preferences in runners where they like to lean back or sit back. All of those things move your center of mass backwards. Relative to your initial contact position that increases overstriding distance, right? Overstriding is if we're looking at where you hit the ground versus where your center of mass is, I can just tell you right now, most runners, if they haven't been taught form, their, their center of mass is going to be back. They're going to sit back or lean back most of the time. Um, and that's a postural preference. The reason we do that is because it's easier. It's like when I sit in a chair, like right now, I have a tendency to slouch. Yeah. And the reason I slouch is not because it's good for me. It's because it's easier. I don't have to use my back muscles to hold me upright. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's better for me. And so run form is no different. It's just posture. And so what is good posture? Um, you know, everybody, it, it's leaning, but it's, it's really leaning your whole body kind of through the waist and the chest. There's kind of an art to that. Like mm-hmm. it, when you're doing it right, it feels like you're running over yourself to me. It feels like you're running over the top of yourself and you're bringing your posture forward so it shouldn't be just through the waist shouldn't be just through the chest it should be a nice um some people will say lean through the ankles that's not wrong but that cue i have found doesn't work as well as um just staying on top of yourself if you're looking at somebody from the side like the everybody loves a good a good race photo like if you have a picture of yourself from the side as let's say your, your left knee is in maximum flexion in front of you and the right foot is behind you and you're about to toe off. Everybody can kind of visualize that. Yeah. What you would want to see from the side is a nice clean line relatively from your foot up through your shoulders. Um, and what we oftentimes see is uh, somebody leaning back really far through the shoulders or their, their bottom, their butt being back too far. They're sitting back. Mm-hmm. So that's posture. So that's a big one. Um, and then, you know, research would show maintaining arm swing is important. Um, you know, having some relaxed arm swing. Uh, the, the goal, the overarch, the hierarchy goal to me should be a relaxed, effortless form where you feel like you're compact and, t- and running over the top of yourself. That's what it feels like. Um, and there's some details in there. And some of these to get to some of those places um, can be difficult for some people. And we certainly have, I mean, that's what we do for a living. We have cues and things that we use and we use visual feedback. Like we let you watch yourself run, show you what you're doing, show you what you want to do. And that can really be helpful. Um, But yeah, that's, that's essentially the goal to summarize again, compact, efficient form landing underneath your body with your knees slightly bent, and good posture. 
those would be the things that I would say uh, all runners should really try and emulate um, when it comes to maximizing this blend of economy and injury prevention. That's really interesting. And I think, um, so, I mean, you kind of hinted at it, but one of the things you guys do is, is kind of video people and show them their run form. And one of the things you guys have at your disposal is the 3d run form analysis. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that and yeah. what that shows and like how you guys use that? Yeah. So, so the way I always talk about it is a 2d, like any runner that comes in, if they're, if they're, if a gate analysis indicated, we're going to do a 2d and a 2d is, it's just a video with an iPad and we have some software where we can draw angles and stuff on your legs from the front, from the side, from the back. A three dimensional analysis <clears throat> is we put 35 retro reflective markers on your body and they're all in relevant landmarks, i.e. joint centers basically. And there's some on your head, it's a full body. And we have 12 cameras in the lab. So you run on a treadmill or you run through the space we have 12 cameras that film you. They know how far apart those markers are. They know where you are and what it, and then the 3d analysis spits out a report, not unlike an EKG of the heart, which is essentially um, looking at how every one of your joints and your limbs, your torso, your trunk, your hips, your foot, everything, moves in the three planes. We have our three Cartesian planes, X, or our three planes in the Cartesian plane, X, Y, and Z axis. So we're looking at every joint and every plane, and then those graphs um, compare. So let's, let's just say we're looking, one of the 50 plus graphs is your knee flexion. So how your knee bends throughout the, and extends throughout the entire gait cycle. We have left knee, we have right knee. It's gonna compare that side to side, the report will. And it's also gonna compare that to a bank of uninjured sub-elite runners and how they move. And so then it's up to me, I take that with a grain of salt, depending on pace, depending on background, depending on expectations and goals. I take that report and I, not unlike a, a cardiologist would take an EKG and look at your heart rhythms and determine this is the problem based on my interpretation. I will take that report, which is incredibly sensitive and it shows everything. And I can, I can tease out the important variables in your run form um, that are a problem that need to be addressed. And then I will show you how to address them. So the, the actual 3D analysis takes about an hour and 15 minutes for the collection. I prefer to give a week's time in between for me to go over the report and then go over the data a week later. The product is better that way. I have people that come out of town for these and I'll do the analysis and I say, just give me an hour. I go over the report and then I turn it over. But it's a really, it's a really good product. The 3D analysis is not wrong. That's the thing. You know, my interpretation of a 2D is good. I have a lot of experience. I work with a lot of runners, but the 3D analysis is real objective data and we have numbers and I, I will say every, I have never done it. I've done a lot of 3D analyses, um, uh, hundreds. Uh, I've never done one where it hasn't been uh, richly valuable um, and very confirming one way or the other for the athlete. Uh, 
the key is not to get overwhelmed and to give someone a realistic recipe that they understand and that they can take home and accomplish themselves. Um, so is that something you use just on like injured athletes? Like someone comes to see you, they've got this injury and then you kind of pass them through, like you decide whether the 2d or 3d would be better or can someone come to you and say, Hey, um, a fairly healthy athlete, but I just want to yeah. improve my economy and run form. Can we yeah. do the gait analysis? Yeah, I would say, um, both scenarios happen. Most of my 3Ds are coming from individuals that um, may have a, a a background of being injured, but they're not currently hurt. Uh, they want to improve their run form. They know maybe it's a problem, and they want to they want to do whatever they can to maintain longevity and also squeeze that lemon from a mm-hmm. economy standpoint. The, the majority of my 3Ds and endurance athletes are that type of um, analysis. Now I will, with some of the really chronic injuries, um, you know, if somebody's actively hurt, we, I'll, sometimes I'll plug them into the 3D immediately. Um, Cause I'm going to do a PT evaluation. When I do a 3D analysis, I'm going to do just like anything I would if somebody's currently hurt. But uh, um, you know, I would say most of the time, like if somebody has knee pain and they've had it for six weeks, we take insurance. We're physical therapists. I would encourage them just to call. I can talk to them about it if they're not sure, but just to set up a PT session because I can watch them run uh, in a PT session, and a lot of times I can figure out the problem. It's it's some of these deeper rooted injuries, especially if you're looking to squeeze endurance or economy out of the the equation. Mm-hmm. The 3D is better because it doesn't miss anything. Right. So. A lot of triathletes will use it, especially over the winter, um, kind of as they're resetting. Um, collegiate, collegiate athletes with the long-standing history of injuries and a lot of new, new runners um, that just want, like, the best assessment they can get to kind of set the stage for, um, uh, you know, to be as successful as possible without getting hurt. Because that's really the name of the game is not getting hurt. You know, right. injuries are a bummer. Um, I see them every day and, you know, they're never really easy. Um, yeah. and they can be prevented in a lot of cases. Yeah. So if someone does like the 3d analysis, 2d analysis comes and sees you um, and you identify these kind of areas where there's definitely room for improvement, how should they go about implementing those changes? Like what's kind of the timeline on that? Cause like, I guess the way I'm thinking about it is say you have someone training for their marathon, they're, eight weeks out, is that the time to implement stuff? I mean, there's probably some stuff they can do, you know, for immediate yeah. help. Or would this be something that someone should like really seek out in like the off season because it's, you know, a multi-month process? Yeah. It really depends on how big of an overhaul it is. Um, you know, there, there's been hundreds of times eight weeks out from a marathon um, that I have changed run form because that is why, the injury is there. Um, so, but to, to tra- there's some changes that are really big. And when you make a change, it's throwing a huge wrench into the individual's motor plan. And it can set the stage for, it increases load in other areas mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Um, and so it can set the stage for something else to get hurt. Uh, if you like hit, I'm very- hit it in like a high mileage, like training cycle. 
Yeah, um, it's definitely not the best time, but we, I'm, I'm sensitive to that, and I'm, I'm very sensitive to like, first doing no harm, right? Mm-hmm. So not hurting somebody yeah. more. So um, I certainly consider that. Uh, but you know, let that, you know, with any a 3D analysis in the off season is a great time to do it uh, when your mileage, like you know, at, like maybe right two or three weeks after your A race where you can kind of reverse taper, um, reset things, um, really focus on form. Your, um, and in terms of how long it takes, it really depends on how big of an overhaul it is. Uh, I would say on average, um, most people come to see me for the analysis and then the follow-up session and then one more time, four or six weeks later to confirm what we're working on mm-hmm. um, has is has been effective. Um, I always say when I make a change, like let's say I make a change in your follow-up session, it's like I'm sending you home with algebra or calculus problems for the first time. Like mm-hmm. I want you to go do these math problems and do them right. Um, is how confident are you that you did the problems right? So yeah. sometimes people need that confirmation. And I will say oftentimes people are not, not often, but probably half the time, people are not doing exactly what they think they are. Yeah. So it's usually like a, a follow-up, which is included in the analysis, and then one more. So in how long that takes, the literature would show 12 weeks. It takes you 12 weeks to make a change. I will say clinically, with what we're doing with um, biofeedback and using visual feedback and just my experience, it takes four to six for the change to really stick and the athlete to be very confident. But again, it depends on the overhaul. There's sometimes where if they've got a few things that I need to work on, I'm not going to give it all to them at, at first. Cause it's just going to be overwhelming, but you take up, you take an athlete that has a lot of experience running. Um, you can throw them some difficult cues and they can handle them. It's usually relatively quick. So yeah, I mean, I imagine that also relies like pretty heavily on someone's understanding of their body and where it is in space. And like you said, being able to take those cues, because like if you're telling someone that they need to land more under themselves, like if no matter how you cue them, it's really hard for them to grasp how to like move yep. their feet and knees differently, then like yep. that's going to be a longer process. Yeah, you're right. Everybody's different in that respect. Yeah. And, but it's fun. I love doing it. It's, it's, it's fun to work with the different types of people and different individuals. And, and we can tell you know, usually about how long it's going to take. And, um, and normally the runners on the same page, you know, we it very rarely are, do I think it's going to take longer? You know, usually the athlete knows I'm, I don't have this right now. And, and in those cases, we let them go home and work, you know, for a couple of weeks and then come back. And now that they've been paying attention to their form, now it's a little bit easier to make a change because they're actually thinking about form. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how many of these common threads I see, you know, like one of the ones I picked up when we were talking is prevention's easier than treatment. You know, I mean, if, if someone can come in in the off season when they've got the time to kind of change some of these run form things, maybe even overhaul their form entirely, um, that's going to be easier than trying to treat these nagging problems Yeah. because then they're going to have to do it anyways. They're going to have to make these changes, but then they're under a time crunch with races and stuff. Yeah. And The other thing is awareness, like just the awareness around your run form, how your body moves through space is going to make it easier to make those changes. Yeah. 
Yep. Cool. All right. So one more question for you. Um, this one's kind of like a hot topic. We talked a little bit of before we jumped on here, but about like garments and wearable devices um, and the run metrics that those spit out. So is that, I mean, is that useful data? So when someone's say you've got a runner looking for a new device or a triathlete, is it worth the investment into one of the devices that has more of those run metrics, like vertical oscillation, ground contact time, cadence, like all of those things. And how do people use that data? Yeah, it's certainly powerful. It can be powerful information. Um, I would say the, you know, knowing what to do with it baseline is not as easy as using it to track uh, progress. Like if somebody is a bouncy runner and they are told you're a bouncy runner, um, you know, your vertical oscillation is too high. We need to work on going forward. You can use that data to confirm mm -hmm. a, pr a progress. So just like cadence, if, if you, if, if I know if somebody, if I've been running at a cadence of 150 and somebody tells me my cadence is low, well, what, what, what am I going to do? I need some feedback. Look at my watch and see that it's improving over time. So that's the most val valuable way is to use it to, um, to work on something that you know is a problem, um, just having the data at baseline is not as valuable to me because it's hard. Everybody's different. It's hard to know. There's not like a standardized um, step length and vertical oscillation um, for every runner because we're also different. But yes, I think that there is some. There's a lot of value in having that data because there's probably going to come a time where you want to see those trends over time. Um, but there's, you know, there's certainly not, it's certainly not mandatory. Um, but I love data and uh, most <laughs> athletes do. So it's pretty amazing what they can, what they can come up with. We get those, that metric data, we get it in our 3D analysis because it's pretty basic. It's valuable information. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's more valuable when you're looking at trends. Um, over time or through as you're working on something that you can see tangible progress. Yeah. So. I think my big takeaway about it is the data like that and those devices don't take the place of seeing a specialist, seeing a PT about like that run form, but they are a useful tool to help, like you said, measure the progress measure and like track how you're doing on those, those uh, interventions. Yeah. yeah. You can prove that it's, you've made an improvement. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I personally, I personally, you know, look at my cadence just to see, you know, what it does over time when I'm fatigued, was I maintaining good form and proper turnover, but I don't get stuck on the number. You know, I think all of us have a tendency, um, you know, for perfectionists to want to see a number and know that's the marker that I need to hit. But yeah. I would encourage people to listen to your body, you know, um, higher cadence may be a little bit better, but it doesn't have to be a, a one number across the board. There's not uh, like the magic number. No, there is not been the magic number. And you'll, you'll read that, that there is um, yeah. in a lot of places, but it's, it's definitely not true. Um, yeah. So, and there's some research to back that up, uh, yeah. but that's for another, another talk, I suppose. Yeah. And I think the other piece of that is like, 
I mean, the data is cool. It's good to have metrics, but it shouldn't be like, to your point, it shouldn't be a point of stress. Like if you're sitting there on a run with your vertical oscillation screen up and you're just like obsessing over what the vertical oscillation is every stride, then like you're defeating the purpose because you're just like so fixating on that that you're like miserable running. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, These changes are small. You know, when we, a big change equates to a small number. Yeah. You know, we're talking about, you know, when you improve somebody's run form, if they've got full knee extension at initial contact and you're improving their run form to where they have their knee slightly bent, we're not talking about a big change in terms of the number. It may go from five degrees of flexion to nine degrees of flexion, um, you know, which is not huge. Yeah. Um, but even, even less when you're talking about vertical oscillation, I mean, you know, it w- wouldn't be a big change. So, um, but our the devices are relatively sensitive. So, um, yeah. anyway. Cool. Um, so I always like to wrap up with this. So kind of with everything we've talked about and your perspective in general, what are two to three actionable things that athletes listening to this can take away to improve their running? Uh, good posture. So strong posture, staying over the top of yourself is what it kind of feels like. Um, don't overstride. Don't reach out in front of you. Don't try to, when you get fatigued, don't try to chew up ground by increasing your step length. You know, that should come from your power and your pop and your, your drive and, uh, stay compact. So good posture. Don't overstride, stay compact. Those are the three things that I would pick. Awesome. Um, Yeah. Nice and simple. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Lee. I really, I really appreciate your time. Uh, this was a hugely informative episode. Um, I think just like a really great episode and especially now, you know, since so many races are canceled with COVID and everything, this is like, this is the prime time that you were talking about, you know, like right after your a race, since there are not really any races on the calendar, this is like the prime time to start focusing on your, your stride run form to kind of, get all that under control and make sure that when racing does start back up, you don't have injuries. Yeah. I would agree with you there for sure. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Michael. I appreciate it.